I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore great books and thought leadership through conversations with best-selling authors. Today, I'm interviewing Senator Joe Lieberman, one of our nation's top statesmen, discussing his new book, The Centrist Solution, How We Made Government Work and Can Make It Work Again, which came out October 19th, 2021. We did the interview in front of a virtual audience on December 15, 2021. Enjoy. So, Senator Lieberman, welcome to this program. We're excited about your book. Uh, thanks, Talmadge. It's a great pleasure to be with you. And if you're half as good as Cindy Chris convinced me you were, this is going to be a great discussion. Hi, <laughs> Cindy. Yeah, there's Good, good. Well, let's get started. We have limited time, and I'm going to start on your opening page, Senator Lieberman, where you say centrism is not an ideology, rather it's a strategy on how to govern in a democracy. So that being the case, why do so many politicians in the 21st century, who are obviously trying to get elected, somehow view centrism as a losing strategy? Yeah, so uh, uh, great question, great to be with you. Um, You you got right to the heart of it, because it's really important to me to to uh, define centrism uh, clearly uh, at the outset of the book so people don't confuse it with moderation, which I have nothing against moderation, but centrism is different. It's not just for moderates, it's for uh, people uh, of all opinions, liberal, conservative, Republican, Democrat, independent, or moderate. Uh, And the question, uh, the determinative question uh, to define a, a centrist is are you willing to come to what I call the center, but really is common ground to sit and talk with people who are from different ideologies, different parties, and try to come up with a resolution to whatever the national problem is that uh, Congress uh, uh, and the White House want to deal with. And that's the way it's been done in America uh, since the Constitutional Convention and at other great moments uh, in our history. It's the way uh, I was able to be part of the the legislative enactments over my 24 years in the Senate that I'm most proud of. They were always bipartisan and in the center. It's just the way you, you have to do it. Um, so uh, that's why I hope the book is instructive uh, to people in Washington that if they just have the will, they can do it, and also maybe helpful to the public. But your question really is, what, why is this generation of elected officials in Washington not doing it. And I'm just going to tick off reasons because each one of them could be a, a, an hour-long discussion. I um, mean, part of it clearly is the gerrymandering of House seats uh, and the real, political reality in a lot of uh, Senate seats, depending on the state, which is to say that a lot of those House seats uh, are not really uh, c- competitive on Election Day because they're either decisively Democratic or Republican. So the big contest is the primary, securing the nomination. A lot of states are like that too. One party states are primarily one party states. And therefore the uh, elected representatives in Washington uh, are nervous. The Democrats don't wanna agitate the left of their party to primary them and maybe defeat them. Republicans tend not to wanna do that uh, with the right of, of their party. And, and that makes people unwilling to do what necessarily must happen to achieve centrist solutions, problem solving, and, and that is to compromise. Uh, and uh, you, you never can solve a big problem in this big um, um, multifaceted country of ours uh, with, with in a way that makes everybody happy. You've got to be willing to take risks. And look, you all know a lot of you are in business or, or professions. Uh, I can tell you from my political life that the biggest steps I took forward was when I took the biggest risks. Uh, you can't make progress without taking risks. And right now, 
gerrymandering, among other things, too much money in politics, media, partisan, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they're just not uh, willing to take the risk to negotiate, compromise, and get something done. And that's where, and we can get back to it later, Thomas, that's where no labels, and Nancy Jacobson is here, God bless her, uh, and, and which I'm privileged to be the co-chair with Republican Governor Larry Hogan of Maryland, really works hard to create, to, to enable, and if you will, encourage um, uh, members of Congress of both parties to come to the center and, and work it out as they did recently in the bipartisan infrastructure bill. So that's a, that's a longer invocation that I will try to give in response to your, the remainder of your questions, but it, it sets it out and I hope answers your question. Well, it does, but as you're making your pitch for people to join your centrist movement, which is tied around the No Labels organization, which you mentioned, Nancy Jacobson, the CEO, you're the, the co-chair, what you're really asking politicians or political candidates to do, as you said, is to make compromise in order to make a viable deal. Now, when you ask him, why don't you compromise? So often their response is, why should I compromise when I know my adversary refuses to compromise? So what's your response to that comeback? Well, you know, it, it, it's, you know, we used to say it takes two to tango. It takes two parties or representatives of two parties to solve problems in Washington. So I understand the suspicion, but um, uh, one side has to take the initiative and hope that it engenders a response from the other side. I don't know why I'm thinking of a very old quote from the uh, um, Secretary of War during the Second World War, Henry Simpson. And he said after the war, as the Cold War began, it didn't really work, but it was a lovely thought. Sometimes the best way to make a person or a country trustworthy is to trust them, at least until they give you a reason uh, not to trust them anymore. And uh, part of that's part of what has happened um, within the No Labels movement. We've helped to enable um, two groups, one in the House called the Problem Solvers Caucus, 58 members, equal number, 29 Democrats, 29 Republicans in the Senate, led by Josh Gottheimer, Democrat of New Jersey, Brian Fitzpatrick, Republican of New York, in the Senate, um, uh, it's a group of 10, which on the infrastructure bill went up to 20, led, you will not be surprised, by Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat of West Virginia, and Susan Collins, Republican of Maine. And uh, they've really uh, worked together. And look, part of that, I just want to add a comment to this challenge from my own experience. Uh, some of the, the, the most significant victims of the current uh, terrible partisanship in Washington and gridlock are the members of Congress themselves. Uh, and you wonder why they do it. In other words, they, they, they work hard to get elected. Uh, they do things that for a lot of us don't come naturally. They have to ask other people for money to support their campaigns. I want to thank those people on this call who responded to me when I had to make those awkward pitches to you and, and very successful visits uh, to the Dallas area. And then they get to Washington and, and they, they, they want to do something, most of them. And they get, uh, it, it's, it's like Dr. Seuss and the, and the uh, Sneetches, whatever. In other words, they suddenly get into two warring camps. And uh, uh, it, what I say to them is, look, uh, I've now become a, a senior, uh, as, as my law firm says, a senior counsel or my uh, uh, doctor says, you're maturing, you know. Uh, but I look back and I say, and I try to say this to members of Congress, and we in no labels do, um, at the end of your career, what do you want to do in Congress? Look back and say, wow, I, 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 was, I was a member of Congress. I, and you know what I did? I played it safe. I didn't really get much done, but I kept getting reelected. I mean, wow, is that what you want to say? I think you want to say, I went with a mission. I wanted to do something to help the country and my constituents. And uh, that, that's what I did. And I didn't always please everybody, but at least I tried to get something done. And I, I think there's a growing body within Congress that has that attitude. And really, and this is the dilemma that No, no Labels works on so hard. I think it, there's a majority of the American people, by every poll I've seen, 
um, both parties and independents that really want the members of Congress to come to the center and work together to get things done for the country and them. Why wouldn't they? They, they didn't vote for, for people to have them go to Washington and spit at each other for two years. I mean, that's ridiculous. Well, I know that you and no labels are always trying to cultivate relationships with people in Congress, both the House and the Senate, move them toward the Senate, move them toward dialogue, bipartisan dialogue. And yet we still have, for the most part, the, the same gridlock we've now had for many years. How much of the blame for that gridlock do you place on the leaders of Congress, the Speaker of the House, the Senate Majority Leader and the Senate Minority Leader? Yeah, well, they, they deserve some of the blame because, um, you know, they're always looking toward the next election. And right after the, the last, or the day after, I mean, Mitch McConnell had the nerve to say it in 2009, and right after Obama was inaugurated, my mission for the next four years is to make sure Barack Obama doesn't get reelected. But that's really the thinking of a lot of the leaders. And uh, um, they're... they're uh, they're constantly thinking of that much too much when they um, when they fashion programs or oppose programs, when they raise large amounts of money and uh, support different candidates or, or implicitly or explicitly um, uh, threaten members of the House or Senate that if you don't go with the party, we may not support you next time financially. And that's part of where no labels comes in. We've really encouraged our members uh, to be financially supportive of centrist legislators in both parties. And I think it's had a real effect on empowering them to do what they um, do what they want to do. But um, no, the, the, the leaders are part of it for sure. And uh, another you know, way- When you talk to the leaders and you talk yeah. about, come on guys, it's about more than re-election. It's, it's about- getting something done for the country? Do they just walk the other way or, or, or do they kind of give you lip service? But have, have they, yeah, they all, I can't say I've really had that direct conversation for a while, but I bet I would, I can tell you what their answer would be, uh, the current leaders, which is, oh no, you misunderstand us. Uh, we're in power to get something really good done for the country. And uh, we can only get it done if um, I have a majority and that I'm a leader of the majority or I stop with being a minority leader, what's happening, what the other party uh, wants to do. And, and that's not a, a productive game. I mean, part of what I describe in the book, just to remind people how possible it is to, to come to the center You're and get everything done. Right? Pardon? Everything done is, look, you, uh, look back a little further, uh, Lyndon Johnson and Everett Dirksen, Democratic president, Republican, leader of the Senate, I mean, they together were the main uh, reasons why we had the Civil Rights Acts of, of the 60s. A uh, little, little closer, President Reagan, Tip O'Neill, conservative, Republican, liberal Democrat, they liked each other. They had a hell of a time together, mostly swapping uh, Irish jokes and having a drink together. Not enough of that happens in Washington anymore. And then more recently, this remarkable and really unpredictable relationship between President Clinton and um, uh, Newt Gingrich. Uh, just when the Gingrich and the, and the Contract with America group took the House, everybody thought, oh my God, legislative civil war. But these two people were really um, policy wonks. They weren't at all as socially uh, comfortable with each other as Reagan and O'Neill. And each of them knew that they would gain with their constituents if they got something uh, done. And then seeing Sandy there, uh, there was a just a wonderful bipartisan centrist uh, uh, coming together over the No Child Left Behind Act, which Sandy worked on so hard for the Bush administration. I mean, you had President Bush, 41. You had Ted Kennedy, one of the most liberal Democrats in the Senate. You had uh, Judd Gregg, conservative Republican, ranking on the Education Committee, and you had uh, Evan Bayh and me supporting the centrist Democrats, and it, there was a lot of give and take. And in the end, nobody got everything they wanted, but everybody got something good they wanted. And I think it's really helped to uh, educate a lot of, particularly poor kids in our country. 
uh, who, who, are, who would have been well educated otherwise. Yeah, you, you said Bush 41, you meant Bush 43. I meant Bush 43, right. Yeah, yeah but, Sandy's, not, Sandy's old, but he's not that old. <laughs> now, now, one of the heroes of centrism uh, in your uh, book is Bill Clinton, who, as president, uh, went across the aisle, worked with Republicans, got all kinds of things done. Uh, by doing that, to quote Willie Stark in your favorite political novel and mine, he got the mayor to run, made the mayor right. go. Uh, but then, of course, his political legacy was shattered by his personal shenanigans. But here was Bill Clinton. He, he held on the presidency until January of, of 2001. And beginning in 2004, including with Clinton's vice president, Al Gore, Democrats, for the most part, have refused to follow in Clinton's footsteps by prioritizing bipartisan politics. Why do you think that they turned their back on the Clinton approach to governing? Well, part, you know, parties in America are, are dynamic, and it's, it's happened to both parties. I mean, dynamic is a more positive adjective than I would like to use. But uh, in in uh, the Democratic Party, uh, the um, uh, the center of it moved left. I'll, I'll be very personal about this, and I uh, I write about it in the book. Um, in uh, two thousand three and four, I sought the Democratic uh, nomination uh, for president. Two thousand four, and uh, I ran basically on a Clinton Gore uh, platform. I, mean, I didn't call it that, but on trade and internationalism and all the rest, reform. Um, but uh, the party had just left that. Um, my other problem, obviously, was that I stuck with President Bush 43 and, and the war in Iraq. I didn't think we should sort of pick up and retreat just because it was a mess after we defeated Saddam. But uh, what was fascinating on a whole series of issues, um, trade, uh, labor uh, law, uh, involvement internationally, I, I could go. Uh, I could go on. The party had moved to the left, and so um, I'm not saying I was otherwise likely to win the nomination. But but what struck me in the debates, and I, I talk about it in the book, is how often I took a position that was a winning position for Bill Clinton, and now uh, uh, you know it's just I was out on the margins of the Democratic Party. But look, the Republican Party has gone through this too, obviously. First, with the um, you know the uh, Freedom Caucus, et cetera, in 2010, and then obviously with the Trump uh, upheaval and t take over the party uh, for now uh, after 2016. So, yeah, both both parties, uh, the 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 centrists in both parties need to really uh, take hold again. And I'll just say you didn't ask me, but in my opinion. Uh, if they don't, I mean, if we have a, a sort of a Trump, either Trump or a Trump-like Republican candidate for president in uh, 2024 and a left Democrat, not center left, in uh, running for president, uh, there's probably the best opportunity in a long time for a third party independent bipartisan ticket. Uh, there's not much historic uh, encouragement for this. You got to go back to Abraham Lincoln for the last time it happened. Incidentally, he had a Republican, I'm sorry, he had a Democratic vice presidential candidate, Andrew Johnson. But um, it's possible because I think the, the I just happened to be in a, a meeting the other day about something totally non-political where we're waiting for somebody else to come in. And uh, there were three or four people around the table with me waiting, so naturally they asked me political questions. And all three of them said, um, I don't feel comfortable in either of the major parties. And it turned out that one of them uh, was a Democrat, one was an independent, and one was a Republican. And uh, uh, I think that's uh, Nancy's husband, Mark Penn, once said, uh, I believe it's him. I always give him credit for it. And he's he's good enough that I should give him credit whether he deserves it or not, that the fastest growing political party in America is no party, which is to say independent, unaffiliated voters 
And that's a real market rejection of the Republicans and Democrats. So who's to say? So I don't know how I went off on that uh, flight of, uh, <laughs> but of, of perhaps prediction, perhaps telling how bad it is that if two parties don't make it work, the, the system provides an alternative. And your book talks about how mm. this failure to work in bipartisan tandem has uh, infected our foreign policy. You talk about how in, in years past, 1948, President Truman and Senate Majority Leader Arthur Vandenberg worked together to put together the Marshall Plan. In the 1990, you, along with a few other Democrats, gave public support to using the military to liberate uh, Kuwait from the Iraqis. In 1992, a few Republicans and Democrats wanted to take action in the war in uh, the Balkans. And finally, in 1995, President Clinton came around. But it seems like these days of bipartisan foreign policy are now gone. So, so give our audience your impression of how this failure to work together. And you had a great quote from Vandenberg right. in the quote about how partisanship stops when we go to war, something along those lines. But yeah. how has how has partisanship infected our foreign policy in the 21st century? Yeah, I really appreciate that question, Thomas, because uh, the world watches us. I mean, we know that from what we see on television every day. Nothing can happen anywhere in the world that we don't see almost immediately. So they watch us and it, they see the partisanship. They see our government divided. They see our people divided and it, uh, it, it uh, makes our allies uneasy and it emboldens our enemies as a general principle. I wanna go back to that post-World War II history because it's really instructive. I mean, um, Vandenberg was a senator from Michigan. He had been a, a newspaper editor before he ran, but quite conservative Republican. Uh, during the 30s, he was against most of Roosevelt's domestic programs, and he was an isolationist. And uh, he was really uh, sort of rhetorically campaigning against Roosevelt getting into the Second World War until Pearl Harbor. And he said then something like, um, um, after Pearl Harbor, any, any American who's an isolationist is not a realist. And I, Arthur Vandenberg, am a realist. So he supported the war. But then significantly after the war, in the whole range of post-war programs, the World Bank, NATO, uh, the, the uh, uh, President Truman's initial uh, response to the Cold War in uh, Greece, Turkey, uh, to stop the communists, um, Vandenberg became his partner. They had served together in the Senate, so they knew each other uh, when, when Truman uh, suddenly became uh, president, but but he did say so. People, um, the Republicans went to him in '47 and said, um, "Why, uh, Arthur? Why are you uh, giving so much support to Truman's foreign policy? We we think we can beat this guy in '48, and you're making him look stronger." And uh, Vandenberg, that's what he said, uh, something like, "Partisanship or politics must end at the waters, at the shore, at the nation's uh, shore, at the coast." And uh, it was very significant. He wasn't saying that um, uh, people couldn't disagree on foreign policy. Of course they would and could. But the disagreement should not be based on your party affiliation. And um, uh, that went on for, incidentally, uh, we, we lost Bob Dole last week. And here's a perfect case of a guy who was a party leader. He could be a real, as they used to say, a partisan attack dog. But uh, it, it never got personal with him and, and Democrats, as it does too often today. He, uh, I just saw Tom Daschle last week, a day or so after Dole died, and, and we were talking about Bob. And uh, he had been the uh, Democratic leader for some time when Dole was the Republican leader. And he said, he, Dole, older than he was, and uh, he said he just couldn't have been nicer to me, couldn't have been more helpful, couldn't have been more transparent. But the point I want to make is that. Uh, Dole, probably because of the whole World War II experience, he all, he's a patriot. He always put the country first, particularly in foreign policy. So I'll give you an example. I mean, uh, he began to campaign for the U.S. Uh, to do something to stop the genocide 
uh, and aggression uh, in the Balkans, particularly against the Bosnian Muslims, while uh, President Bush 41, Republican, was there, it didn't stop him. And he continued uh, with me and McCain and Joe Biden, interestingly enough, as the bipartisan team uh, under Clinton until we finally did something about it. Today, uh, that doesn't happen. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm very concerned about what the Iranians are doing in our nuclear program and the threat they represent to the region and, and us, the world. And uh, for years, we had a, a really strong bipartisan coalition about Iran. And then the Iran nuclear agreement uh, 2015 under President Obama became intensely partisan. And it, it just shouldn't have. It's, it's too important to the country. Hopefully that's being repaired a bit now in response to the uh, extremism of the Iranian uh, regime right now. But, but uh, honestly, we ought to be able to separate, uh, even in the most partisan times, to get together and do what's, uh, what's best for our country in the world. Because what's on the line is our values, freedom, our uh, security, and obviously also our prosperity. I should have said this at the outset, but if anybody has a question, please open your chat box and, and, and enter it. And, and uh, at the end of the hour, we'll get to as many as we can. But along those lines, uh, Senator Lieberman, the last time that it uh, uh, seems like people on both sides really got together was after 9-11. You spend uh, quite a bit of time in the book talking about working together with Senator McCain to create the Department of Homeland Security, to appoint the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks, and to uh, endorse their findings. And you say uh, in the book, it happened because, quote, a national catastrophe can break through partisanship. Well, that's that was true in 2001. Do you think that's still true today? No, not as much. Uh, and obviously, we're in the middle of what could be called a very different kind of catastrophe. I mean, just in terms of damage, uh, fatalities, just think about it. We lost over 3,000 people, Americans, on 9-11. In the pandemic, as reported yesterday, we've gone over 800,000 deaths in this country. They're quite different challenges. I mean, one, one intentional aiming at kill Americans, the other a naturally occurring uh, pandemic. Uh, but uh, it's not that there hasn't been any uh, bipartisanship. Under President Trump, there was, uh, uh, in 2020, some of the first legislation was adopted uh, in Congress to fund the various programs for um, protective equipment, and of course, most important for the vaccines, uh, did... Um, it was bipartisan, but then it got to be intensely uh, partisan. A lot of it around <clears throat> Trump and his opinions about how to deal uh, with it. Um, and now, uh, since Biden has come in, there's been more um, uh, uh, some more significant appropriations to deal with the pandemic, but generally uh, passed only with Democratic votes. So it's a it's a uh, it's a it's a reflection of how uh, um, corrosive and, and irrational, and then actually uh, I use respectfully the word immoral when you're dealing with a, a pandemic that threatens everybody's life. In, in 2001, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but we um, there were real debates uh, about what to do uh, that led to the creation of the Homeland Security Department and the, the reform of the intelligence community after the 9-11 Commission report, um, but uh, and there there were moments of partisanship, um, but they didn't prevail. I mean, at one point, people and I, I we all suspected this. Uh, uh, President Bush forty three was opposed to uh, the creation of the independent commission, and at first was reluctant to go with the Department of Homeland Security. But on both, he ended up being a supporter. And the initial. I think the initial resistance was bureaucratic, that he was surrounded by people and agencies that didn't want to go under a, 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 an umbrella secretary. They liked their autonomy, but he, he spoke out against that. And then with the 9-11 with the Commission, I always suspected, and there was 
uh, oh, a few years ago, a book by uh, a great uh, guy named Michael Allen who worked in the White House, that um, the House Republican leadership had convinced, perhaps, or at least argued to President Bush that this commission that these McCain and Lieberman wanted to adopt was really aimed at blaming 9-11 on him, which was the last thing we, 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 were, we were recommending it, John and I, because we saw the whole thing becoming self-defensive and partisan. The, the Democratic committees were beginning investigations that might well have tried to blame it on President Bush. Anyway, it, it all ended up well. If there were any fights, they were really uh, bureaucratic. I mean, Don Rumsfeld didn't want the new director of national intelligence to have anything to do <laughs> with the intelligence assets of the Department of Defense. So that was a big battle. Uh, but but in the end, it was not Republican Democrat, and and it passed both houses uh, with overwhelmingly bipartisan support. That is both the creation of the Department of Homeland Security uh, and the um, and the reform of the intelligence community, which is the greatest reform since the late '40s, and I figured because then we were starting the Cold War, and, and, and at that point, 2001, we were beginning uh, the uh, um, war on terror. I just say I'm very proud of what happened there, except sometime when I go through, it hasn't happened lately, we go through the security line at the airports and one of the TSA agents recognizes me. Oh, Senator Lieberman, I can't thank you enough. You created the TSA. Uh, you, you, you gave me my job. And I said, could you quiet that down a little bit? Because, you know, the other people on the line don't really think that I did a good thing. <laughs> anyway, so it goes. One uh, point that uh, really I don't think your book goes into much, uh, and we have a question, in fact, from my managing partner, John Shackelford, about the role that the, that the cable news and that, uh, for that matter, social media plays in intensifying the divisiveness between the parties. And I'm curious if there's anything you and or no labels is doing to try to bring down the temperature uh, of the various networks with their respective uh, political agenda? Yeah, well, uh, that's a tough one, obviously, because of the First Amendment. And, um, but the, but the, uh, the, the, there's been in my lifetime, and, and the, that of a lot of people on this call, a dramatic change in certainly the national broadcast media. I mean, I had no idea what the politics of uh, Walter Cronkite or Huntley and Brinkley uh, were. Uh, they just told us the news every night. Uh, today, um, you go to the cable news network that reflects your political point of view, uh, and there's this uh, unbelievable number of social media outlets that also feed uh, your ideological inclination uh, or partisanship. and. Uh, that reflects itself. That that has an effect on public officials, frankly, because they they figure if I take this position, I'm more likely to get on this cable news network, and that'll help me get reelected. And uh, that that's been a, a, a destructive, divisive factor in our politics. I I don't know what the answer is. I mean, the answer, uh, I suppose, is to turn it all off. Um, uh, or to demand that the networks give us something independent. I mean, when I feel at night that I got to turn to the BBC to find out what news has happened in the world, I realize I got a problem because on the, uh, the cable news networks are just screaming at each other. I also have a theory, it's unrelated to this, that one of the reasons why Netflix and the other streaming channels have done so well uh, is not just the pandemic, but people get sick of cable news after about an hour of it. and uh, as I always, my wife says to me, I say to her, hey, let's see what's on Netflix, you know, and uh, so it goes. Uh, so it's had a real a negative effect. Uh, you know, in some places, uh, for instance, nationally, NPR um, does provide a sort of alternative on radio. It happens in the state of Connecticut that um, uh, our newspapers have shrunk so much as they have all over the world that they're all over the country that uh, a nonprofit was created that started something called the Connecticut Mirror. And it, it does a sort of independent newspaper review online. Um, maybe that's way, one way to try to um, 
start the, the competition. But, you know, in some ways, Roger Ailes had a great business idea with Fox uh, and he implemented it uh, and it was enormously successful. It remains that way. And I must say, to one degree or another, uh, um, MSNBC, CNN, Newsmax, etc., have all emulated that, uh, but looked for their own market share. And unfortunately, that doesn't encourage uh, neutral reporting of the news. Well, another area that I'd like you to weigh in on uh, that's really not covered much in your book, but I know no labels is is addressing it. It's a question from uh, Bill McKenzie, who's uh, here with the George W. Bush Presidential Center, and he wants to know what what are you and or no labels doing about gridlock in the various state governments? Is that part of your focus? Or are you directed almost entirely, if not entirely, on on what's going on in Washington? Um, well, we're mostly focused on Washington, but Nancy, I'd, I'd like to give you an opportunity to say a few words. Nancy Jacobson uh, spent a lot of her early, the early part of her career really raising money uh, and supporting Democratic candidates. 2009, she just got fed up with the partisanship and decided she wanted to try to help it. And uh, she worked on it for a year until she was ready to launch just about 11 years ago right now. At 2010, and um, uh, you know, it's a classic. And what so in so many cases in, in politics and business, a single person has an idea, and then the persistence and capability to implement her, and that's what Nancy did. So I, I really thank her um, and uh, honor her for that. But maybe she wants to answer your question. Nancy, what are the states? What's going on with uh, no labels in the state governments? And, and thank you so much, Senator Lieberman. Uh, actually, we we are not focused there. We can only, at the moment, do so much. So really, you know, we uh, created, conceived of, named it the Problem Solvers Caucus in the House, and matched all those relationships together. Uh, and then, you know, really, our biggest innovation was understanding to bring the senators together uh, with the congressmen. So that's really where we're focused. And as Senator Lieberman mentioned, we are looking to 2024 because you really can't have uh, if you ever want to reset the country and, and get it back to where we all want. You, you really need the right kind of president. So we are keeping our eye on 2024 and figuring out, you know, an insurance policy plan uh, should we not have acceptable choices uh, in that contest. Okay, thank you. So uh, Talmadge, let me just add this, which you all know from your states. Um, generally speaking, uh, a lot of the states have been much less partisan, divided along partisan lines than Washington is. I'm, I'm not sure I know exactly why that is, but unfortunately there is a trend that more of the states are going Partisan, but I, I seeing Sandy again. I just tell him, but uh, my interest in school choice continued after I left the Senate, and um, uh, I, I joined the board of a group called the American Federation for Children, which advocates, but also created a pact to support uh, candidates who support school choice. The movement is really, in the last year or two, booming. Part of that is the pandemic and the. Uh, uh, the disappointment a lot of parents had about uh, public schools uh, being closed. But uh, what I do want to say is that whereas it was very hard to get any Democrats in Washington to support school choice, uh, at the state level, in states where it's breaking through, Florida is the most notable one, but there are others, Ohio, uh, more and more uh, state Democratic legislators are supporting school choice, including uh, minority legislators, African-American, Hispanic-American, because these school choice programs are, are all about their kids and uh, giving, an op giving them an opportunity to go to a, a better school. So there are some movements at the state level that are much more bipartisan than uh, the federal level. And uh, I hope it continues in that direction. Well, let's let's move now to more of a discussion on what you're doing with uh, no labels. Uh, in most presidential elections, uh, the key to winning is attracting the most independent voters, who are typically typically the centrists. 
And you point out in your book that Joe Biden won the 2020 election largely because he carried the independent vote by 30 percent. You also point out that when he came into office in January, he claimed that he wanted to be president for all Americans. He wanted to work across the party lines. And yet, obviously, this has not happened. When we look at the positions he's taken on the domestic front, the Build Back Better federal spending spree, his policies on immigration, taxes, the environment. What's your explanation? Here's Biden, who spent his Senate career as a centrist. He was elected by independence, and now he's moved left. What's your explanation? Yeah. So that is a very relevant question, probably one that a political scientist will be studying and writing about, but it, but it's very real. And um, so you, you said it. I mean, if you look at the exit polling from um, the last two presidential elections, surprisingly, uh, Donald Trump beat uh, Hillary Clinton among self-described moderates, but not by a lot. And part of that, I think, was everything we were talking about, the, the, um, the, the anger, disappointment of uh, independence, moderates, about the partisanship in Washington and the failure to get anything done. Uh, so Trump looked like uh, he certainly wasn't a conventional politician, seemed to be a businessman who was successful. They knew it was risky. They knew there were risks, but they said, let's give it a choice. But let's give it a chance. By the time we came to 2020, uh, a lot of them felt, well, not that they disagreed with everything he did at all, but they felt, wow, this guy uh, has uh, uh, diminished the level of debate uh, in our country and the nasty comments about people are tweeting. He's divided us more. We need something different. And Biden won um, by a lot uh, um, among the self-described moderates, as you said, Thomas. So, um, and it sort of fit Joe Biden. I mean, I served with him 24 years. By coincidence, I knew him for years before that because we had a mutual friend. And, you know, he always worked across, not always, but frequently worked across party lines. He knew that's what you had to do to get things done. I mean, he was part of the criminal justice reform that uh, Gingrich and, and uh, Clinton put together. He actually got criticized a little bit for at the beginning of, of the campaign in 2020 from the left, but, but he uh, survived that. But I think people felt also his demeanor was, he was calm, he, was, he had an instinct, a personal instinct. So they, they voted for him with hope, but uh, uh, what happened then is that the, the left, the so-called progressives, uh, both houses uh, were very demanding. Uh, uh, people like Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, in a way, continuing their losing presidential campaigns. And here's where we go back to the role of the leaders in the party. So Nancy Pelosi and, and Chuck Schumer are leaders of their respective caucuses. Uh, those caucuses tend to be uh, center left and then have a pretty healthy contingent that I would say is left left. And their goal is to try to hold the caucus together. And I'm sure they said to President Biden more than once, you can't abandon these people. Um, uh, they're the, they're, we got to uh, we got to deliver some things for them. And I, I think it's hurt him. Incidentally, how did he get the nomination, Joe Biden? Well, forget the uh, leave aside the election for a minute. Remember what happened? It, Bernie was on a roll until South Carolina. And then a lot of Democrats, including African-American Democrats in South Carolina, said, whoa, Bernie Sanders could get nominated. Does he, he, he probably will lose to Donald Trump. And so they, a big a movement occurred back to Biden and he got the nomination. And I honestly believe that although, this is a classic uh, story where sometimes when you're trying to negotiate an agreement, let's say a business dispute or even a, a legal dispute, uh, but certainly uh, too often uh, you kind of settle it with the people around the table, but you forget the people out there. So um, uh, too often there have been negotiated settlements in the Democratic Party to pacify the various groups of the party, including the left. And they're really not, um, they, they trouble people uh, in the general population, and the numbers among the self-described moderates now are very negative. 
uh, for Biden and the Democratic Party because there's a perception that they've gone too far to the left, including on this uh, Build Back uh, Better bill. So, I mean, there's still time to uh, correct it. And it, it, here's the, uh, the irony that what um, the Democratic leaders may have convinced President Biden uh, it was best for him to do is actually, uh, uh, if he believes that he, he, he should obviously support it, but on a pure political terms, uh, it's hurt him and it's hurt the Democratic Party. And uh, they, they got to try to get back toward the center left if they expect to protect the Senate. House is probably out of reach in 2022. Have and I'm uh, surprised that uh, President Biden, that when he gets calls from Pelosi and Schumer and saying you got to take care of all these uh, sides of the party, he hasn't stood his ground and reminded them of what he said in his inauguration about being president for the whole country and his willingness. He, he seems to have forgotten that he said that. Yeah, so uh, obviously I'm not party to those conversations, but uh, on uh, in too many cases that we see publicly, it looks like he's tried to pacify the left. I mean, he did compromise on the bipartisan infrastructure bill, but obviously that was a public works bill. Even though the Republicans sort of made it into uh, an act of treachery, if you're a Republican who voted for that bill, my God, a public works bill, that was the least partisan in, in my time. Uh, ever, uh, uh, but Biden did support that, and uh, I, I think he'd really help himself if he picked out a couple of other issues and really came to the center and negotiated, hopefully, a bipartisan uh, agreement. It's going to get harder as we get closer to the election, and uh, if the House goes Republican, let alone the Senate, the House appears likely to go Republican today. Uh, the last two years of the Biden administration are, um, are going to be, uh, they're not going to accomplish much. Maybe that's why they, they're pushing so hard for the, the Build Back Better bill to get it done while they have a chance, but it's it's over. I, I hope Joe Manchin does what he says he, he wants to do, and without opposing what's in the bill, because some of it is good, just saying, we can't do it now, let's, let's pause. And uh, we'll come back to it after we have more time, but then we see how inflation is going in our economy and uh, how we're doing generally with the with the uh, pandemic. And uh, let's not rush to it. So I, I, of, I he does that. Part of what uh, No Labels is doing in connection with that, having constant conversations with Joe Manchin to make sure he stands his ground. I mean, we're reading the paper how Biden and the other Democrats are meeting with him daily, trying to turn him around. Is he getting an equal earful from no labels about the importance <laughs> of, of not kowtowing to this? Uh... Yeah. yeah, he is. And we've developed, a, I mean, I, I had a, I have had a personal close relationship with Joe Manchin, but a, a, no labels is really important to him. And he and our, our, our leaders are, our business leaders who, who are so important to the movement have been important to them, he values their words. So I think we're getting at least uh, equal time. And uh, look, by, by his record, you can see he is a centrist and he is fiscally responsible. He's not just showboating now, this is what he believes. And they're trying to bring him back over into the party. And it can be difficult, you know, when you're sort of the lone person out or one of two or three maybe in your caucus, but he's a strong uh, person, and uh, I'm, and he has the ability single-handedly, as you know, to stop this. And I think that would be good for the country. And uh, let me tell you a little secret. I think it would be good for the Democratic Party if he stopped the bill back, and for President Biden if he stopped it for now. And they can always come back to it and try it when, when it's clearer how the country's doing. Uh, let's talk uh, about a specific program that No Labels has uh, by which you certify problem solver candidates. Yeah. Who you believe, you know, have a chance to, to win in Congress, whether the House or the Senate. So, so what's your test for certifying whether somebody qualifies as a problem solver or not? <laughs> well, I'm going to yield to Nancy in a minute. Part of it, uh, if they're incumbents, is that you know, based on their actions and uh, voting record, but if they're challengers, we, we try to get them to be as 
uh, uh, open and transparent and get them to commit. I mean, and what we what we do is we have the separate outside of the no labels nonprofit this operation that raises money for centrists and uh, that's had a real effect uh, since 2016 when we first uh, tested it in two races, two primaries, one in Kansas where we supported a sort of center-right Republican against a far-right Republican and one in Florida where we supported a center-left Democrat against a far-left Democrat. I'm pleased to say that both of the centrists won those uh, uh, two primaries and went on to get elected and we've been doing that in one way or another ever since. But Nancy, this is your turf and you handle it so well. Yeah. Uh, so where we are for this cycle, for the incumbents in the House of Representatives, there were nine Democrats. We called them the unbreakable nine that stood up. You know, really, we're looking for people with the courage to stand up for the country instead of the party. I mean, that's really who we are. You know, if we and that's why it's so fantastic. We have Senator Lieberman here. But, you know, somebody like himself, somebody like John McCain, somebody like Joe Manchin, those are all the types of people that are part of this, you know, that we we champion. So the nine Democrats that stood up to Nancy Pelosi to demand that uh, the build the uh, infrastructure bill was delinked from the build back better and that they got their vote first those people we you know we support and that's where we give heavy support and we can always share with you those names and then you know the republicans that delivered the bipartisan infrastructure bill they stood up to their party they stood and really when we say their party we mean Donald Trump because Donald Trump did uh, and is going to primary anybody that did as a republican vote for the infrastructure bill for the nation so those people show courage so really you know really i i believe this senator lieberman's my mentor but uh, he was one of the first individuals in our um, that was willing to go against his party for the country. Uh, his his best friend John McCain was was on the Republican side, and now we're starting to see the birthing of more and more leaders at at, at you know lower down these these members of Congress. But Joe Manchin uh, following in those footsteps. So th- those are the people we support. Now, Senator Lieberman, in the book, on at least two occasions, you quote. Voltaire for the proposition that, quote, the quest for perfection can't be allowed to block the achievement of good results, close quote. I'm curious, are any of the candidates backed by no labels using Voltaire's statement in their campaign themes? (laughs) Well, they may. They may not know it started with Voltaire. I must tell you that I first heard that way back when I was in the Connecticut State Senate, and I remember we had a big dispute about some bill. One of my senior colleagues, then, and most of them were senior then, uh, said, uh, remember, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And oh, maybe 20 years later, I was reading some political science text, and they quoted Voltaire. And I said, damn it, I, I thought that was Joe Feliso in Hartford that <laughs> made that up. That was Voltaire. So... Uh, I think a lot of them are doing, I mean, really, that is at the heart. It's a one-sentence description of a centrist solution. If you're going for the perfect, if you're asking for 100% of what you what you want on every bill, you're probably going to get nothing. So really, you shouldn't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, which may be 50%, uh, 60%. And uh, um, just to, to make the point, I talk in the book about Teddy Kennedy, clear liberal Democrat, but when he wanted a great centrist because he came to the center and negotiated. John McCain was a conservative Republican in many ways. Um, Orrin Hatch, a conservative Republican in most ways, but when he wanted to come to the center, he was a centrist and he negotiated and uh, he, he got something done. And that's why we have some of the progress we've, we've had in our society. We've got to come back to that because obviously it's um, it's more rewarding. So uh, what do you think about a, a banner that says, remember Voltaire? <laughs> Probably, yeah. Well, I, I mean, so many people are saying you got to fight for the perfect. When you fight for the perfect, you're not going to get it. So it's going to be a losing fight. 
And that's the whole premise behind uh, the Voltaire statement. Yeah, Thomas, let me just mention something because uh, every now and then, pollsters ask a really interesting question of the American people, which is, do you prefer that your representative in Congress does exactly what he or she promised you they would do in the last campaign? Or do you want them to be willing to compromise to get something done? And maybe not surprisingly, but it is worth focusing on because we don't act as if it's the case. In, in every case, the number is 60, 65, 70% say, I want them to compromise. I, I understand they can't do everything they said they wanted to do, but but I want them to get something done. And uh, I hope more members of Congress are listening to that. Well, I, I think one of the best things in your book, when you go through the various uh, statutes that you got passed, whether it's the Clean Air Act, No Child Left Behind, so many of these things, you talk about the specifics of the trade, of what the Democrats yeah. gave up, what the Republicans gave up, in order to get to a deal that both sides could sign off on. And and, and your book is, is worth reading for many reasons, but those are specifics of the kind of horse trading that is necessary in order to to get uh, important legislation passed. Uh, I want to ask you one final question before we run out of time. You say that, quote, coming to common ground begins with mutual trust. So what is No Labels, this organization you're the co-chair of, Nancy's the CEO, what is being done to build mutual trust in Washington this year? Yeah, great, great last question, because look, um, beneath the public stories about the Congress, the place of great debates, of division, of of attack, counterattack, it's in the Senate, 100 people coming to work in the same place every day. And your ability to get something done, as in the cases I mentioned earlier, Clinton, Gingrich, Reagan, O'Neill, et cetera, depends a lot on whether you trust the the people on the other side of the table. And uh, part of what No No Labels did, it's it's so primitive, so simplistic, (laughs) it amazes you. But the truth is, I can tell you without belaboring it, that there is very little interaction between members of the Senate and members of the House in the normal course of congressional activity. It's really surprising. And in the Senate, the the schedule, the committees are organized, the schedule in a way that uh, it's not that Republicans and Democrats don't see each other, but um, they're separated most of the time. And um, they don't get to spend time with each other. They don't uh, know each other and therefore they, they don't trust each other. We're all running, you know, we fly in Monday afternoon for a vote. We, we, uh, we press the majority leader. When can, when can we leave on Thursday? And so you tend not to have the relationships that people had uh, before. And, and what No Labels has tried to do is to create places where Republicans and Democrats and House and Senate could get together. I mean, we, one of the more fa- so the, the House Problem Solvers Caucus, when it started to try to meet, and these were all uh, candidates in both parties that uh, no labels have supported. Uh, they would meet one night a week um, for, uh, I don't think it was pizza, I think it was tacos and beer. That should be good in uh, Dallas, right? And uh, uh, they just spent time talking to each other. And I can't tell you how many of them said to me it was the best two hours or three hours of their week because they, they got to know the other people. And uh, it wasn't all. Uh, it wasn't all partisan. And then we, we tried something else that we didn't realize how smart it was. It wasn't my idea, but uh, let's see if we can uh, host a bicameral breakfast or dinners where we bring in the centrist centers to meet with the house problem solvers. And lo and behold, what happened? They started to talk, hey, I'm introducing this bill in the house. Maybe you, some of you would like to do it in the Senate. And they, they started to build up relationships across party lines and, uh, and trust. So um, that's really important. I mean, look, I, I was uh, blessed in my relationship with John McCain. I, I couldn't ask for a better friend, not only in politics, but life. And how did it happen? 
we, we both were on the Armed Services Committee. We traveled uh, a lot around the world. And you're in a plane um, you, you, for hours. You're talking to each other. You're reading. What are you reading? You're telling jokes. Occasionally you watch a movie. Uh, you know, and you become you begin to know each other. This is, I want to say, speaking to a group in Dallas, um, 2000, I was the vice presidential candidate against the ticket on which George W. Bush ran for president. I actually had never met the president until Inauguration Day. And I'll never forget, uh, and I met him briefly afterward, uh, he, he was very gracious and congratulated me on the run and all. And I said, you know, Mr. President, it's over and uh, anything I could do to support you, I'll be glad to do. My wife and I are praying for you and, and uh, First Lady. And uh, he said with that, you, you could probably impersonate it, Sandy, that, that classic sort of Bush half smile. You know, Senator, we may find some ways to cooperate. <laughs> and sure enough, we did. And uh, I, I think I tell some wonderful stories about what became a great friendship between uh, President Bush and me, and it was based on trust, really. I mean, I think we enjoyed being with each other. It was based on trust. Just as your success in business or the professions or anything else you're in is based on the extent to which the people you're with trust you, they're very much the same in politics. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I encourage everybody, the, the centrist, take it to heart. Uh, to the extent you're interested in government actually working instead of people screaming at each other, uh, this is a movement that is uh, certainly worthy of your consideration. Uh, Senator Lieberman, thanks so much for your time. Nancy, thank you so much for your commentary to help some of these answers. And uh, we hope everybody's enjoyed the, the program and uh, have a happy holiday season. Thank you. Thank you all. Thanks, Thomas. You're as good as uh, Sandy said you would be, maybe even better. <laughs> Thank you, Senator. It's great to hear you. Thank you. After reading Joe Lieberman's new book and having the opportunity to interview him, my admiration for what he did in his political career and is now doing with the No Labels organization has reached new heights. Thank goodness we still have leaders who are committed to making government work. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.